Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. As we talked about the last time on Terranauts, NASA's second manned spaceflight program, Gemini, started out as a small project within uh, Project Mercury to upgrade the Mercury spacecraft to make it more reliable and easier to build and test and make ready for launch. Eventually, it was to become a billion-dollar project that would teach NASA how to go to the moon, So we ended up last time talking about all of the things that the Mercury engineers wanted in a new spacecraft. Jim Chamberlain, the head of Project Mercury Engineering, had worked for months with a team of engineers from NASA and McDonnell Aircraft in St. Louis to come up with what was effectively a brand new design. Problem was that Project Mercury had no need for a brand new design, and the Apollo Project was already designing its own capsule. So that was kind of an issue. But then... The reality of President Kennedy's decadal challenge to get to the moon really started to settle in, and NASA started realizing that Apollo was going to be busy enough building the rocket and the spacecraft to go to the moon that they weren't really going to have time or resources to learn some of the things they really needed to know before they started flying. And these were things that Project Mercury, with its purpose-built capsule, simply wasn't going to be able to teach them. In short, they needed another project, and a brand new spacecraft. They needed Jim Chamberlain's Mercury Mark II, only they needed it to become the centerpiece of its own project, which would eventually become Project Gemini. So, before moving on to talk about the Gemini project itself, uh, let's talk a little bit about what NASA realized it needed to know in order to make Apollo possible, which were, in fact, the things that Gemini was tasked with teaching NASA which means that we do need to talk a little bit about going to the moon and how that was going to be different to just getting to orbit. Um, A whole lot different in a lot of different ways. I mean, to some extent, it feels like once you're in space, the hard part is kind of over. The amount of energy needed to go anywhere once you are out of Earth's gravity well is actually pretty small compared to the energy required to get out of Earth's gravity well. And once you're in orbit, it means that you have solved the problem of how to get a human into space and protect them there from the vacuum of space, and you have figured out how to provide them with at least the basics that will allow them to live and work on board their capsule. So you've solved that problem, too. So at this point, the problem isn't actually getting to the moon. Um, It's actually slowing down and stopping once you get there. Because unlike the Earth, the Moon does not have an atmosphere to help with this task. And then, of course, once you've done that, you have the problem of accelerating off the surface of the Moon to come home again. Now, we've talked about it a few times before, but it's worth reviewing something here that we have called the rocketry equation at this point. Now, this was the equation that was first written down by Konstantin Tsiolkovsky in the early part of the 20th century. It basically says that the maximum change in velocity that any rocket can experience is proportional to its total mass, 
including the propellant you expect to burn, and inversely proportional to the mass that you have left over after you have burnt the propellant. Which basically means that the more of your rocket that is made up of fuel and oxidizer, the higher your achievable uh, change in velocity, or delta V, will be. Now, recall that delta V, or change in velocity, is the statistic that really matters, because the energy required to get away from a celestial body like the Earth can be given purely in terms of delta V. Similarly, the energy that you have to spend to slow down enough to land on a different celestial body, like the Moon, from its orbit can also be stated in terms of delta V. So our planned mission to the Moon and back means that we have to have the delta V take it away from the Earth. and We're going to need a rocket to do that then we have to spend delta V to slow down and land on the moon. And that delta V will also have to come from our rocket. And then we have to spend delta V to leave the moon and head back to Earth. And that delta V will also have to come from our rocket. Now, thankfully, when we get home, we'll have an atmosphere to slow us down. So that delta V cost won't have to be provided by a rocket. But let's start looking at what this rocket is going to have to do um, so let's maybe the easiest thing is to start at the end and work backwards. The capsule that come back comes back to Earth only needs to be big enough to carry the astronauts aboard it. Now we also need to provide it with a re-entry shield that's heavy enough to prevent it from burning up on re-entry. Um, also, we need to provide it with the parachutes to slow it down enough to land safely in the water. Okay. Okay, so leaving the surface of the moon, we're going to need a rocket that carries enough propellant to get that capsule off the surface of the moon and back to Earth. Now, the rocket is obviously going to have to have the fuel tanks and the rocket engine to do that as well. Okay, so far. But remember that all of the mass in those tanks and engines is just kind of wasted mass because we don't need to come home with it, but it all counts against our final mass in the rocketry equation, and that means that we will have to have even more fuel and a bigger rocket engine to achieve the delta V we need to leave the surface of the moon. But that's just getting off the moon. But remember, all of the mass in that return rocket system has to be gotten down to the surface of the moon so that it can be available to bring us home. So we're going to need an even bigger rocket that has enough propellant and big enough tanks and a big enough rocket to gently land our whole return rocket on the surface of the moon. And remember, as far as that landing rocket is concerned, all of the mass of the return uh, rocket and all of the mass of the tanks and the propellant and the engine that are required to land on the moon are wasted mass when we calculate the rocket's delta V equation. So by now we have a pretty inefficient rocket and a pretty large one too. To put it in perspective, the rockets that took the first humans to orbit had final masses of something like 5% of their total mass meaning that by the time the booster had separated, the capsule represented only about a twentieth of the mass of the rocket sitting on the launch pad. Well, now, sitting on the moon, we have the descent rocket, including its fuel tanks, and the return rocket, including the capsule, the tanks, the engine, and all of its propellant. And all of that mass had to be lifted out of the Earth and sent to the moon, and which means that that is all going to need a lot of propellant, 
and a lot of thrust, which is going to mean massive fuel tanks and massive engines, which will need to be heavy, which will require more fuel, etc., etc., etc. And it doesn't take a very sharp pencil to realize that we are going to need to have an absolutely massive rocket. Even Werner von Braun and his engineers, who had been planning a lunar mission for almost three decades, understood that. Now, they thought they had a plan to get there, but they were pretty sure it was going to take them uh, 10 or 15 years to work their way up to that design. Uh, suddenly, they only had effectively five, because the design had to be finished in time to test it before they sent the mission to the moon before the end of the decade. It wasn't enough time. Not nearly enough. To put it in perspective, the rocket that would have been required for the such a direct ascent mission that we've been describing would have had to have been several times bigger than the Saturn V that eventually powered Apollo. And the Saturn V is still, by some margin, the largest rocket that we have ever launched. So what was to be done? Well, the direct ascent approach was the simplest way to design a lunar mission, but it wasn't the only way to do it. For instance, instead of launching the whole stack, including the return capsule and its booster and the lunar descent booster, we could launch the pieces separately and assemble them in Earth orbit. So, for instance, first we'd launch the descent booster system into orbit. Once it was there successfully, we could launch the astronauts on a rocket that included their return rocket system. Once on orbit, they'd find and mate with the booster, and then the whole stack would head for the moon. The booster required to get each piece into orbit would be significantly smaller than the one that would be required to get all of the pieces there at one time. Um, this mission plan was the so-called Earth rendezvous option, because the pieces of the spacecraft would meet up and be assembled in orbit around the Earth before leaving for the moon. But there was another option, and this one was called the Lunar Rendezvous option, and it was actually kind of ingenious. In the Lunar Rendezvous option, the amount of mass that was needed to descend to the surface of the moon was kept to a bare minimum. Uh, by having most of the return rocket stay in orbit around the moon, and having only a very light descent stage with an, a small ascent stage and small ascent engine actually going down to the surface. This in turn meant that much less of the mass had to be mo moved to the moon's surface since the actual return rocket stayed in orbit around the moon. And again, since every kilogram of mass that needed to go to the surface of the moon was going to be worth something like... 20 kilograms of fuel and tanks and engine that were needed to get it off the surface of the Earth, this option really reduced the size of the booster that would be needed really to the bare minimum. It was an innovative and intriguing option, but not one that was very popular, at least not at the start, with the Apollo program. In the early days of the Apollo program, uh, before President Kennedy put the focus of the nation and the world on getting to the moon uh, with such an aggressive timeline, the direct ascent approach was definitely uh, ascendant, shall we say. It was kind of assumed by default that this was the simplest and most direct way of solving the problem, and so that was just how it was going to happen. 
But as the truly staggering size of the project that would be needed to develop, test, and eventually deploy, the truly staggering size of Booster that would be needed to support the direct ascent mission started to be uh, assimilated by NASA engineers and managers, um, the pendulum started to swing back towards the option of a rendezvous mission. I have to admit, with the benefit of 60 years of hindsight, it's a little hard for me to understand why this was such a difficult decision at the time. Um, it just kind of seems obvious to me, but of course this is colored by the fact that all of the Apollo missions used the lunar rendezvous method, and it worked. It, it worked so well, in fact, that it's kind of the way we think about going to the moon. And the image that we have of going to the moon is that fragile, angular lunar module touching down gently on the lunar surface while the command module circles overhead in orbit around the moon. My opinions are also, of course, colored by the fact that I quite literally spent most of my space operations career working on the problem of rendezvous. Now, by the time I started working on the problem, the questions were about how to make rendezvous more efficient or even automatic, and not about whether it would work at all. But whether it was even possible was definitely a question that had yet to be answered in 1960 and 61. I mean, when you read the histories of the time, it's actually a little hard to keep track of all the panels and committees that were struck to study the issue. And almost all of them discarded the rendezvous options almost out of hand, or so it seems. Um, to understand why, I think we need to understand a bit more about the problem of rendezvous in space. Um, as I said, over the past 60 years, the rendezvous and mating of spacecraft uh, is something that has become pretty routine. But in the early days of space travel, it was very, very much not a solved problem at all. More than that, there was actually a fair bit of concern that it was a problem that would actually defy solution, at least easily. It really was a very big question mark hanging over the future of spaceflight, but why? What's the big deal? It just doesn't sound like it should be that hard. I mean, at the time, planes were flying intercontinental distances with precise navigation that allowed them to fly thousands of miles and arrive within sight of their destination. Similarly, pilots had no problem flying in tight formation with one another. I mean, literally within arm's length. And the astronauts in the NASA program were some of the best test pilots in the world. I mean, what was so different about doing the job in space? Well, the problem to some extent is that orbital rendezvous had NASA running around in circles. Literally. I guess that needs a bit of explanation. You see, maneuvering a spacecraft in orbit was, and is, a different problem than maneuvering an aircraft, because spacecraft move in circles, and airplanes move more or less in straight lines. And that, as the saying goes, has made all the difference. See, as we've talked about before, when you go uh, and leave the Earth and go to space, you really don't leave the Earth. You actually just go into orbit around the Earth, at least initially. And if you remember, being in orbit around the Earth just means that even though you're still always falling towards the Earth, because it still has gravitational pull, yeah, so even though you're falling towards the Earth, you're moving forward fast enough that you never actually get any closer. 
Instead, your path just bends around the Earth, and that's why you stay in orbit. This is true of a spacecraft going around the Earth, and it's also true of a spacecraft going around the Moon. Um, in fact, it's actually true of pretty much any spacecraft almost anywhere in space. You see, an object flying in space is always being affected by the gravity of some large object. It might be the sun, it might be a planet. So it's always going around something at some distance. Now, the only real exception to this is when a spacecraft is in a place where the gravitational forces of more than one object cancel each other out. And these are very special points, and they're called Lagrange points, and they've been in the news uh, lately at the time of publishing this podcast because the James Webb Space Telescope is destined to take up residence at one of those points. But we digress. So why do such orbital mechanics make the problem of rendezvous hard? Or more specifically, why did they pose such a concern for the early Apollo mission planners? Well, it's because orbital mechanics kind of make things, well, weird. And it all has to do with that circular motion. Okay, so let's set this up. Uh, when you're in orbit around the Earth, your motion is described by some fairly simple equations. Now, without going deeply into the math, what those equations say is that the faster you go around the Earth, the larger your orbital radius will be, the farther from the Earth you'll be orbiting it. But the larger your orbital radius gets, the longer your orbital path is, and so the longer it will take you to complete one orbit. So even though you're going faster, it will take longer to go around, at least uh, to someone who's on the Earth watching you. And so you'll actually seem like you're going slower. Okay, so far? So now let's say you're flying in a spacecraft and you're trying to catch up with another spacecraft that's flying ahead of you. And let's assume it's quite a ways ahead of you, like, like a few kilometers anyways. Now, you've managed to make sure that you and the target are both in the same orbit, and more in a second on why that's not as easy as it sounds, but it is essential. So if you want to catch up, what do you do? Um, fire your rockets and speed up? You do not. If you fire your rockets to speed up, you will find yourself floating up and rising above your target. But then since you're in a higher orbit, your orbital speed will be slower, and you'll start to fall even farther behind. Yep, that's right. By speeding up, you ended up slowing down. I told you it was weird. Now, in fact, the right answer is that to catch your target, you would in fact fire your retro rockets and slow down. That would slip you into a lower, lower orbit below, below your target, but your orbital speed would have increased, and you'd start to catch up. And then uh, you would let yourself pass under the target, and when the time was just right, you'd speed up again. And then you'd watch yourself drift upwards toward the target, and once you had matched its orbit, you would also match its speed. Now, once you got very close to the target, the orbital effects, though always present, would start to become less obvious compared to your short bursts of linear acceleration, so you could start to maneuver by just looking at your target. But how close would you need to be, and how fast would you need to move? Well, you can work those things out, um, but until you've tried it at least once, those are some pretty big questions. 
And those don't even include the issues of how to get into the same orbit as your target. Remember that little detail? I glossed over it, but all of the foregoing discussion did assume that you had managed to establish yourself in exactly the same orbit as your target. And that's pretty easy if, for instance, you start docked and then separate and come back together. Uh, It's a bit more of a big deal if you're starting from a different orbit or from the surface of the Earth or the Moon. Um, It involves some pretty hairy math that is not at all straightforward, as what I just described. It's also not a procedure that can ever be performed manually, because it requires precise adjustments at very precise times during the orbit, so it has to be calculated ahead of time. And don't forget that all of those calculations will need to be performed um, with the computing power available in the mid-1960s. In short, um, it was clear that it was theoretically possible to conduct a ground-up rendezvous around the moon. The theory was pretty well established. Eh, but it was a theory that was a long way from proven. Which made it pretty scary as a bet when the success of a 10-year billion-dollar program, not to mention the uh, lives of three astronauts, depended on proving the theory. And of course, the problem was that the decision um, to use a lunar rendezvous, uh, effectively the design of the Apollo mission, I mean, had to be made pretty early on, since the design of every component of the mission depended on that decision. So by late 1961, it was becoming obvious that the end of the decade deadline imposed by President Kennedy Um, With that deadline, there simply wasn't enough time to design and test a booster that was big enough to support a direct ascent mission. So Apollo was going to have to depend on NASA learning how to do rendezvous in space before it got to the moon. And a new project was going to be needed in order to do that learning, because Apollo wasn't going to have time to figure out how to do it itself. And that was the job for the new Mercury Mark II. But um, there were some other questions that needed to be answered too, um, and that Apollo would also not have time to deal with. So these also became problems that the new Mercury Mark II project would be tasked with investigating. The first of these was the problem of long-duration spaceflight. Uh, At the time that the first Mercury Mark II project plan was being developed, The longest Mercury mission then planned was four and a half hours. A trip to the moon was going to take at least a week. Uh, And maybe more importantly, the most challenging part of that lunar mission, the descent to the surface of the moon and the subsequent asset and lunar rendezvous, was going to take place at least three or four days into the flight. So it was not only going to be necessary for astronauts to be able to survive a flight of a week or more, they were going to have to be able to perform at their best pretty much throughout that time. As German Titov's experience was to show, um, this was not at all something that could be taken for granted. Uh, apart and aside also from the actual effect on, of spaceflight on human physiology and psychology, um, there were also some serious engineering questions about the systems that would be needed to sustain and uh, protect life in a tiny capsule in the vacuum of space for a week or more. Uh, The Mercury method of just putting more consumables on board was pretty inefficient as an option for solving the problem. 
And of course, we need to remember that every kilogram of consumable that had to be lifted off the Earth was going to cost something like 20, 20 kilograms of rocket to lift it. So new and efficient methods of power generation, oxygen replenishment, carbon dioxide removal, not to mention the feeding of human beings and the removal of their waste products, um, were going to be need to be developed and tested. Now, as far as in-space operations were concerned, uh, apart and aside from learning how to arrange and manage the rendezvous of two spacecraft, the whole topic of having humans leave the confines of their spacecraft and work in space, so-called extravehicular activities or EVAs, um, definitely was also a topic that needed to be explored, and in some detail. Um, it was a topic that would affect not only the spacecraft itself, from the way its hatches and internal spaces had to be designed, but it would also require the design of a new spacesuit that would allow the astronauts to operate outside the spacecraft. Um, this last was a bit more of an involved problem that you might think at first, because the suits not only had to protect the astronauts from the vacuum and from the extremes of temperature, both hot and cold, by the way, but the suits also had to actually allow the astronauts to work and to allow them to work in a gravity-free environment. Um, as we are going to see, this last requirement was actually to become a significant concern over the course of Project Gemini, and it wasn't solved until nearly the end. The other major question that Gemini was tasked with exploring was trying to find some way to allow for a controlled landing of the spacecraft after re-entry. The method that Mercury used, that of essentially unguided landing by parachute, worked. Um, it worked pretty well. But it really required the capsule to land in water, which, as Gus Grissom uh, had demonstrated, did have some risks associated with it. And it also did require some additional engineering to the spacecraft to ensure that it operated as a boat, well, okay, a semi-submersible one, as well as a spacecraft. It also meant that recovery operations were rapidly becoming a feat of massive logistics involving literally thousands of sailors and airmen on ships and at U.S. bases around the globe. Providing the astronauts with a way to control and guide their own landing would thus remove significant risks and significant costs to the Apollo program. All in all, it was a pretty substantial list of questions that the new project was going to need to answer. Um, and although the initial budget for the new project was estimated to be modest in the extreme, it would grow to become truly a third leg of NASA's manned spaceflight program. So next episode, we'll start to explore how the project went from being Mercury Mart 2 to Project Gemini, and how it went about planning to meet all of these technological imperatives. So that's going to be all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.